there's a couple of points that I want to draw out, conclude with the discussion from last week, and then we will switch gears a bit and a deeper dive into Esther itself, the book of Esther itself, and try to use some of these big questions as a lens through which to see some of the big issues that Esther is broaching and, and discussing. So last week we spent a good amount of time laying the groundwork for understanding how Second Temple books, how books written at the beginning of Bayachini, or before Bayachini, can draw on earlier stories by way of constructing useful histories, right? People talk about, appropriately, people talk about the search for a usable path. So much of what we've been talking about is exactly that, right? So if you're sitting as a diaspora Jew, in the Babylonian Empire, in the Persian Empire, you're looking for a usable path, so Moshe's not going to help you so much, Shmuel's not going to help you so much, but as we discussed, Yosef might be the right kind of uh, hero to, to draw on. Um, now, uh, if you, uh, we looked at the chart, which I think is on page five, I fixed it up a little bit, so if you have a new one, it might, I think it's on page five anyway. There was this annoying blank page that I messed up that time, so I got rid of that in the new copies, but that shouldn't affect this anyway. And we talked about the fact that it's, it's very clear that the author of Esther has the story of Joseph in mind. Not just the character of Joseph, but the whole story of Joseph. Although the character of Joseph is clearly the focal point here, he is the person who essentially incarnates this usable past. He, as a diaspora Jew, as someone who came from the family in Canaan, against his will, winds up in Egypt, succeeds in Egypt by being good, shrewd, within Egyptian bureaucracy, right? It has nothing to do with his Jewishness that he rises to power in Egypt. It is known that he is a Hebrew slave. That's not, right, that, that how he's actually introduced to Pharaoh, but that doesn't seem to help him along. Our usual assumption is that it hinders him, but it doesn't seem to do that either. It seems to be actually neutral. He succeeds because he's good at what he does. He does exactly what Pharaoh needs from him. So he succeeds, and then eventually, as we talked about, he rises to power, has no intention of reconciling, but after plan, whatever it is, C or D, uh, does come around to reconciling with his family. And so by the end of the story, we're not dealing with a character who has cut off ties with the rest of the quote-unquote Jewish people, which was obviously quite small at the time, but is someone who is using his Egyptian power and success and standing to benefit literally his brothers, in other words, the rest of the Jewish family. So in other words, if we look at it through that lens, this is a great model, right? So the Asper Jew can easily say, that's what I'm looking for, right? I am going to be a good Babylonian, a good Persian, whatever empire I happen to live in, and I'm going to be successful in those terms, right? Not because I'm Jewish, but because I'm a good Persian bureaucrat or diplomat or businessman, whatever I happen to be. And the reason that this is not some sort of profound betrayal of my Jewish loyalty is because if, like Joseph, I am lucky enough to have success in these foreign terms, I will use my standing to benefit the Jewish people however that might work out. Now that, of course, is not a terrible summary of Esther. It's not a great summary of Esther. It's not a terrible summary of Esther. But more important than that sort of broad, vague summary is uh, we have all these details where it's clear that the author of Esther has Joseph in mind. The book of Esther alludes to Joseph over and over. Right? And you have, this is what you have on page five. Sometimes this is very specific turns <coughs> of the phrase, expressions. The words, we can do it in translation, but the words in Hebrew obviously are what, what resonates even more. So let's take the second one, for example. When we hear in the Megillah, We have to be hearing, In the back of our heads. That, that verse actually concludes, Pharaoh dressed Joseph. 
Achashverosh does not dress Mordechai, but that's partly because someone had already done that to Mordechai. Back in chapter 6, we have the Vayal Beishet Mordechai, that uh, Haman, of course, had dressed Mordechai. And that continued then, Vayar Kivehu Birchov Hayir. And he, there's no good causative for this in English, but really he paraded him riding through city square and called out in front of him, of course, very famously, that in turn calls to mind, which Pharaoh did to Joseph, he had him ride, where it doesn't say where, certainly somewhere through the city, uh, and they called in front of him, whatever means. It's not only Mordechai and Joseph, that's very clear allusions, but we had earlier, well, this is also, I'm sorry, Mordechai and Joseph, but at an earlier stage, when the other courtiers said to Mordechai, day after day, why are you not bowing down to, to Haman, and he did not listen to them. And that recalls the earlier stage in the Joseph story, when the wife of Potiphar, she was speaking to him day after day, and he did not listen to her. So, of course, that's for sexual impropriety. This is for, it's not clear exactly what they're trying to convince him to do, meaning it's not clear in legal terms what's wrong with what they're asking him to do. They're asking him to bow down to Haman. Why don't you do it? Day after day, he doesn't, he doesn't listen to them. And there's a couple more here, and there are, there are even more than are on the list, but I, you know, I included here the ones that are I think, beyond any, any sort of question. Like These have to call the Joseph story to mind. And the truth is, the way literary illusions work is that once you have a few that are beyond question, like any reader, and of course this means that the author expects us to have the Joseph story in our heads to some extent, right? And as he's writing for an audience for whom this is going to resonate. Like, they're not expecting you to go look in the concordance and say, where else does this word show up? The expectation is that if, if I include a line, like, you'll immediately say, oh, that sounds familiar. Right? So that tells us actually something interesting and important about the author's education and the expected education of his audience. Right? He expects a really literate audience. By literate, I don't actually mean reading and writing, but versed in the biblical text. Like This is going to resonate because the audience is expected to catch the, the illusion. So once you have a few that are clear, so like anyone's supposed to catch this, then other ones, I think, can be less clear because the idea is that once this text, this earlier text is already in your head, then even if something may not be as clear as possible on its own, the text is already in your head. So now I can just sort of like vaguely allude to that story and you'll catch even further illusion. So yeah, I think that's, that happens here as well. We're not going to spend too much time on it, but it certainly happens in Esther also that there are, there are like the really core, absolutely clear illusions, and then there are also illusions that, you know, if they were the only ones we could quibble about whether that's really intentional or not, but once we know that the author of Esther is intending to call to mind the Joseph story, then even those ones that are sort of borderline, what would the argument be? We know that the author has Joseph in mind, so even the ones that are borderline, presumably that's part of the story as well. It's not just the verbal allusions, there are plot parallels. I included a few at the, above that on the page. You know, some of these are totally obvious, some of them are slightly less obvious, and some of them have to work hard to formulate in a way that will make it work. But, you know, obviously a Jew rises to prominence in a foreign court. Joseph, that's possibly Joseph, and Esther, that obviously could be either Esther or Mordecai. There's a downturn in fortunes followed by even greater success, and the heroes earn royal power. Two courtiers challenge the king and are punished, through which the hero is known to the king. So what is that in the Joseph story? Right, the Saramash Gimel Sarofim, who wind up in jail and who, one of whom, at least the surviving one, winds up introducing Joseph to Pharaoh 
In Esther, obviously, that's Bigtan and Teresh, who do not introduce Mordechai to Achashverosh because they're dead, but because of them, Mordechai is made known to Achashverosh. Success is tied with their ability to save their people. The reversal of fortunes has to do with the king's sleeplessness. So in Esther, of course, that's like totally famous. The centerpiece of the story is that turning point of the sleeplessness. In Pharaoh, that's, there isn't a line that he couldn't sleep, but he wakes up in the middle, disturbed by his dream. And the drama ends with a banquet where the invitees do not know the identity of the host. So in Esther, who is the invitee? Haman. Haman doesn't know the identity. Ah, sure, also really know the identity of Esther, but more. And in Joseph? The brothers. The brothers, right. They sat down to eat together, and that's when Joseph reveals himself. So again, like if, if I said that, and I said, oh, this is a clear illusion, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. But since the author of Esther clearly has Joseph in mind, that's really not ridiculous. And that's presumably part of the constellation of illusions. Now, the brief points that I want to conclude with sort of this first part are that Esther is not the only book. So there's point one. We're going to have two points. Point one. Esther's not the only book from roughly the same time period that's interested in looking back at the Yosef story and using that as a usable past. So we have here on the next page, page six, I think, another chart with comparisons between the second chapter of the book of Daniel and the story of Yosef. And the, the second chapter of the book of Daniel is certainly less famous than Esther. I think it's a fairly well-known story. It certainly has, let's say, Aramaic stories, though. But, uh, but certainly less known. But here, the allusions to Yosef are, are actually incredibly clear. I mean, again, it's in Aramaic, so you have to do sometimes some back translating to see the allusions, but really quite clear. So I'll just do this very quickly, both to remind you of the story and to make the point concrete. So both stories, the king has a dream. Both times it happens to be the second year in which the king has a dream. Both times it says, Vatipaim Rucho, or Vatipaim Rucho. The king was disturbed, the spirit was disturbed. The king then calls for his Khartoumim to interpret the dream. Khartoumim happens to be a loan word in Hebrew from Egyptian. So in the Pharaoh story, that makes good sense. In the Babylonian story, it's actually out of place. That's not necessarily a proof of anything, because once it's absorbed into Hebrew, obviously you can use it to describe any magician. But it may be a conscious use of an Egyptian word to call to mind that earlier story, which is actually taking place in Egypt. Then in the Egyptian story, of course, Pharaoh asks, you know, what does this dream mean? The Babylonians in Daniel, as you recall, the king actually won't tell them the dream because he is smarter <laughs> than Pharaoh. At least he thinks so. That's a good trick, actually. He says, look, if I tell you the dream, you can make up any interpretation you want. How about this? You tell me what I dreamed, and if you're right, then I'll ask you what the interpretation is. But if you can't tell me what I dreamed, then what's your interpretation worth? You're not doing anything. You're just making up interpretations. I mean, I could call on a psychoanalyst. They could tell me an interpretation. And how do I know if it's right or not? I want to know, first of all, if you are legitimate. So, of course, they can't do that. <laughs> I shouldn't say, of course. But they can't do that. <laughs> so, eventually, before he kills all the Khartoumim and the other wise men, a guy named Daryoch introduces Daniel to the king. He says, this guy, he has some particular talents here. Maybe he can help. And you have that quoted there. And then the Jew, in other words, either Yosef or Daniel, says it's not him. It's actually God who can help here. One thing I couldn't include, well, I guess I could have included it, but it would have been long, is that before... Daniel comes in, he offers a long tefillah to Hashem, asking for help. God, you're the one who knows the answers. I need the answer now. I know you're capable of helping me, but I actually need you to help me. But it's also interesting when you compare the, the two statements. So Yosef says very quickly, Daniel actually has a fairly lengthy speech to Nebuchadnezzar about the powers of God here, which you don't have the whole thing there, but you have 
the excerpts from. In both cases, the dream turned out to be a symbolic dream, which tells the king about his nation's destiny, and the story sort of you know, goes in different directions from that point on. The only thing I should have maybe emphasized at the end of the story is that who does Pharaoh reward at the end of the Joseph story? Oh, here, no, it is here. I'm sorry. So it's on page seven or eight, depending on whether you have a good or a bad copy. So in both cases, the king is pleased right, and recognizes God's power. I want to emphasize what he says. Now that God has said all this to you, has made this known to you, what conclusion does he draw? Hmm? That the Jewish God or whatever, Hebrew God, is the right, is the correct God. Who says that? Well, I'm looking at the king and Daniel. Yeah, so Daniel, right, exactly. So Nebuchadnezzar draws that conclusion, right? Apparently, God is really the God of gods. What conclusion does Pharaoh draw? Yosef's script. Yosef's exactly. Now that God has made this known to you, look, Pharaoh's no trouble at this point. Believing in God, like, okay, you know, or the pantheon of gods, telling you, your God, your Canaanite God, has some insights here, that's, that's great. I don't care. I mean, this is not a theological discussion. What I care about is that if you have a divine power on your side, then I am interested in your talents. I mean, you might suspect that Nebuchadnezzar's test is more interest, is more divine than Yosef's. He's, Yosef's is <coughs> a good solution to his problem. Right. That makes him a, a worthy... Yeah, great. He's, he's smart, he's shrewd, he's a good tactician, right? Because he didn't just prepare for the dream, he actually said how to solve the problem that he's foretelling. So yeah, this is not a theological question. It was a, it was a question like, I had this weird dream. <coughs> Here's a plausible interpretation. There's no real way for Pharaoh to know whether he's right or wrong. Here's plausible. Here's what it means. Here's how you solve the problem. So great. You seem like a smart guy. Yeah. But I think you're absolutely right. Nebuchadnezzar's challenge was a much harder challenge, and there seems to be higher stakes, and therefore a more sweeping conclusion. Apparently, your God is a serious God. And not just a serious God. God of gods. And then the Jewish interpreter is promoted. Okay, so this is, I mean, this is clear. There's, there's really no, there's no serious question as to whether the second parak of Daniel is based on the story of Yosef. It's really like step-for-step -step model on the same story. But what would you say about if you compare Daniel and Yosef? What would you say? Yeah. Put them both on the table. What do you think? Well, Yosef has more personal baggage. <laughs> that is true. Um, I mean, at least we're not told about Daniel. Right? I mean, he's a exile it's not, it's not a trauma, but yeah, we don't. He's know also an exile, but he's he's an exile as part of the nation. He's not yeah. an exile as part of the family feud. Fair. Again, I just well, don't know anything about biography, but that's a fair point. But I, particularly in this story, how would you assess their roles here? They are clearly to be compared. I mean, the author Daniel clearly wanted you to have Yosef in mind. So, okay, now I have it in mind. What conclusions do I draw? Do you mean beyond this particular text? No, I mean, just within this text, yeah. Is one of them better than the other? Political, I mean, he's meaning, better. Meaning Daniel gets promoted to be the, the head of the wise people. Who knows, like, what that actually means, whereas Yossi is promoted to be the economist, essentially, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Right, he's in charge of the whole Egypt, at least. Uh, okay, great. Well, you made the point before that Daniel had actually a much harder challenge. At a basic level, like, Daniel was more impressive. Yosef interpreted a dream, which was great. Normally, the Fatim didn't do that. They didn't do it this time. Yosef does it. Daniel was able to actually reconstruct the king's dream. Apparently, I mean, he says, because God helped him. So in that sort of straightforward way, he's more impressive. What about religiously? Mm. Fine religiously. <laughs> 
Not in any esoteric. We're just in anything involving religion, God. I have nothing to... Daniel insists on not eating the food of the... Back in right. chapter one. So, oh, are you looking specifically? Yeah, I mean, that, that is, I, I agree with you. That is actually relevant to the broader question. But okay. for our sort of just limited like discussion right now. Okay. Yeah, right here. Well, Joseph is more... His position is more political, whereas... Maybe Daniel's position is more like, I don't know, theological seems like a stretch, but something like this. His actual position, like his promotion? Yeah, I mean, like chief assistant over the wise. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I don't know it if that's, like, uh, I mean, that's, that's what you're theological, asking. but. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right. Like, this is a stretch, but something more intellectual, or hmm. I, I don't know. Okay, that's fair. Well, yeah. one thing I mentioned that, again, I said I couldn't include is that. What? Long prayer, right? So there's an actual prayer, which is not on the page, which Yosef doesn't do. And then there's a much longer speech to the king about how this is all divine. And that has an effect because for Pharaoh says, oh, your God's awesome. You must be very smart. Right? Nebuchadnezzar says, your God is the God of God. I mean, this is essentially a conversion, not to monotheism, but at least, to, like, I mean, if he's going to carry through on this, he should now worship the God of Israel. As the chief god, that's what he said. Do with that what you will, but that's what the text claims. In Jewish terms, and this is you know, the religious way, as a Jew, I think it's fairly clear that Daniel is a better Jew here than Joseph is. Joseph is fine. I don't mean to criticize him. But we uh, did sort of a minimum. You know, Bill Adai, Elohimia Nechlon Paro. And in exchange, as we'd expect, Pharaoh doesn't recognize his religion as anything significant. Daniel has a prayer which the king doesn't hear, but then he actually hear, gives him a speech about his God, and what we you know, maybe don't expect to hear, but what we get in exchange is that the king actually recognizes his God as uh, even greater than any of the other gods. So put that together with the fact that he's actually a more talented dream interpreter, apparently, because he can actually know the dream. I think you can claim, with, you know, I'm convinced at least, that Daniel, this is not just an allusion to Joseph, this is, yeah, Joseph's okay, but like we gotta improve on Joseph here. Joseph is not, Actually, the mo- Joseph is a model which we'll use to build something on, but when we use that now, we have to make sure that our story actually goes beyond what Joseph did. We can't just copy Joseph. And that may well be have connected to what we talked about last time. That at the end, you know, if you read the, the story, Joseph is not actually interested in using his position to help the Jewish people. Uh-huh. He's, you know, he does what he needs to do, he gets ahead. And as soon as he becomes the Mishnah Lamelech, he says, great, thank you very much, I'm now the Mishnah Lamelech, and I'm going to be a really great Egyptian Mishnah Lamelech. Yeah, the flip side, though, is that Joseph actually does things for the country. Right? I mean, he, he effects change. Yeah, it's true. And, mm-hmm. and Daniel's, I, I don't know if this is good or bad, it's, you know, as far as I can tell, it's just different. The dream that Daniel interprets, there's actually nothing to do about it, right? I don't know if you recall, the, he sees a statue with a head of gold, a body of silver, like... And he says, oh, you are the head of gold. After your kingdom, there'll be another kingdom of silver and then bronze and then you know, iron mixed with clay. There's nothing, this is not a problem. This is not anything that's actionable. It's apparently, this is, you're being informed by God of what the future holds. And so there's no suggestion that follows up on that. So he didn't do anything. But, but that also might explain the theological aspect of it. What? Which is, with Yosef, in the first upper right-hand quadrant of this thing, Pharaoh recognizes that God has made all this known to you, mm-hmm. but Yosef, you're the guy that's going to change things. Yeah, there's right. a disjunction right. between what you just pointed out and his actual activities. 
in going out and telling the Egyptians to do this, do not. And there's no presumption in the text that USA's ability to do everything for the nation is part of a direct, ongoing relationship with God. Right. That seems to be right, right? Yeah. We're convinced that he is a shrewd tactician, wise and insightful, and so now that that's done, go, go. right. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. <clears throat> so are you saying the author's intent is to say, like, yeah, I mean, the, the language is very obviously, and mm-hmm. also I agree with you there, and you're saying the intent behind that is possibly to say, like, this is what Yosef should have said? So I actually like, don't think you have to formulate it. Thing he right, I don't think you have to formulate it as criticism of Yosef, because one could say, look, back then, things were different, you know, that was whatever it was, he's great, whatever, fine, I don't care. But I can't just copy that into our time period, because our time period is different. And if we just copied Yosef, you'd wind up with what we talked about last week, of someone who's like, okay, now that I've ascended to power, I'm actually going to cut off ties with the rest of my people, and that, that would be an unfortunate model. So I need to improve on this. explicitly says to his brothers, once they do reunite, he says, like, oh, don't be sad. The whole reason this mm. all happened is so that I could provide for you. Right. Are you saying that's only a retrospective thing? Yeah. Like it doesn't really I don't think it's clear, right? Because I mean, I mean, earlier than that, Yosef has no intention of reconciling. And he certainly doesn't realize that this is all a divine plan until it comes to be. At some point, he says, oh, my dreams, we talked about last time. And he's like, ooh, I can actually get this to work. And then it all comes together. I want to come back to that later on, probably not today. Well, I'll, tell you, I'll say why as follows. Because to summarize what we've, what we've seen right here, Esther doesn't do anything that improves on Yosef. Esther really just takes Yosef and says, that's the story. I mean, there's obviously lots of other things going on in Esther as well. But there's really nothing that I see that where the story of Esther has said, okay, that, that was good for them, but like here we have to do better. Yeah, I disagree because the personality of Esther and, and Joseph are like very, very different. You see, uh, Joseph at the beginning is rather arrogant and mm. thinks he's better than other people. He's ambitious, he's a good organizer, has penchant for leadership. He's clearly out there and pushing forward. And Esther is a much more reticent, thinks not so much of herself, you know, doesn't know if she can do it. It's like a complete opposite, it's like a fix. That's totally fair. Is that better or worse or just different? Because different, I agree with you. There's lots of differences, the obviously. The people who write this stuff better. Which one's better, Esther? Esther. Okay, I don't know, actually. In a bit, we'll come back to the characters of Mordecai and Esther. So we talk more about that. But I hope it's clear. I don't mean to say that the story of Esther is just Yosef, like rewritten in different terms. But in terms of the key issues here, one thing that Mordecai and Esther don't do, which is sort of obvious, but should be said, they don't do anything even like dream interpretations, right? There's no way in which we are told that they are helped by God. Obviously, we can't be told that because we don't hear anything about God. So if anything, in religious terms, you know, use this vague term, they're a step back from Yosef. Yosef was at least, you know, plausibly religious. Like, he, he said things about God. I mean, he never gets a revelation from God. God never speaks to him. But he says, God should do this, God should do that. And as you say, it's unclear that his wisdom actually comes from God because then he's appointed to a position and we're not told that Hashem is helping him anymore. And he seems to be doing fine in that, <laughs> that position anyway. But, you know, he says that God gave him the interpretation, and obviously God is said over and over to help him interpret the dreams. And that's something that all over the ancient world is believed to be supernatural, and therefore you need supernatural help for that. Even that minimum supernatural help, though, neither Esther nor Mordechai is able to claim the mantle of, right? Because no one, nowhere in the Mugilat does it say God helped them with anything, or do they say God helped them with anything? Or, go back to the point that you raised earlier, does anyone ever say in the Mugilat, ah, apparently this was a divine plan? You know what? 
when Esther and Mordecai says, oh, Esther, maybe you were put in the mm. palace yeah, just yeah, to affect mm-hmm. change. Who knows? That whole fatalistic or you know, fate-oriented disposition of fate? the book is similar in the Joseph story. Mm. Interesting. So Without the explicit mention that there is... Yes. <coughs> yes. Yes. Is that fate uh, or is that providence? That's a very good question. Uh, I actually want to come. I actually want to come back to that not today, but next time. I do want to. We'll spend some more time on the God question because obviously it's probably the most famous thing about Esther. But just because it's famous doesn't mean that it's like easy to understand. It seems actually really, really important to puzzle this out. I don't know if we'll be able to puzzle it out with any certainty, but at least to, to try to figure out like well, what does absence of God mean? Especially because it alludes so often to the story of Yosef, and Yosef says, "Oh, it's all God." So the fact that the Megillah doesn't say ever, or have any character say, ah, it's all God, is a really striking omission. So we have, to, we have to come back to that. Okay, so again, just to recap very quickly the major point here in this comparison. So lots of people, I mean, to judge from the two books that we talked about, lots of people, meaning two people, were talking about Yosef as a model for diaspora life in you know, roughly early Persian times. But whereas the author of Daniel says, like, well, he's good, Yosef's good, but like, we got to make sure that we don't follow him entirely, because there are some things that we wouldn't want to follow in our day and age, so let's make sure to improve on him in, the, in some ways. The author of Esther takes it, and if anything, actually takes a step back religiously from Yosef, and won't even invoke God, which is a big question that we have to come back to. One other set of text that I'll, I'll just throw out, and then we will um, drop. <laughs> and that you have on the last page, either eight or nine. And that's, we're not going to read these, but from the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, and from a uh, passage in the middle of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, just for context, put it this way, they're set in the reign of the next king after Ahasuerus. Right, so Ahasuerus in English is Xerxes. He dies in 465. The next king is in English, Artaxerxes, Hebrew Artaxasta. The English is, is lousy. <laughs> it's lousy here because we're talking about essentially a Persian name as transliterated-ish by Greek authors Ish. who don't have most Ish. of the letter, most of the sounds that are in Persian, and then pronounced by Americans essentially however they want to. <laughs> so, like X in Xerxes is the Greek Ch, right? So even the same spelling is actually an attempt to write Cherches, which is not so far off um, from Achashverosh, or at least closer to Achashverosh. The guy's name in Persian was Chashayarsha. Greek doesn't have a shin, so they have a real problem with Chashayarsha. <laughs> but they do have a Cha, but then we pronounce it as Xerxes. So then you, you, know, then you tell people that like, Xerxes is obviously Achashverosh. People are like, well, I don't know, how would you know? There seems to be a lot of questions. But that's really an English issue more than anything else. So anyway, there's Ezra and Nehemiah both live under the next king, Artah Shasta, Artaxerxes. Yeah, please. With Ezra and Nehemiah, do we have more external validation that these historical events occurred? Because with Esther, it seems to be a lot more iffy, even though we, so it's, you know, maybe more like, excuse me, historical fiction, right. um, compared to, yeah. so, yes even and though no. it has realistic character, right. claims of real character. Yeah, so yes and no. The no is that, like, no, we have basically no text from this period at all to confirm or deny anything. But yes, in the sense that Nehemiah, for example, mentions a whole bunch of other people who, in his narrative, who we actually do have, happen to have references to in some letters from Elephantine, for example, some like bowls with random king's names on it, obviously the same name of the king that Nehemiah mentions. There's more circumstantial evidence. 
Also, the genre is much more plausible. <laughs> there's actually there's very little that's implausible in this book. Meaning, historians look at it and say, like, okay, this is obviously Nehemiah's perspectives on events. We need to correct that if we really want to try to figure out history here. But there's really little reason to doubt the broad strokes of the story, both because of confirmation of incidental details and because he doesn't say anything that challenges our credulity here. It sounds like you, we can roughly confirm that the time period in which it was written, all the styles, all that work, that doesn't mean the story happened. That is obviously true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure which part of the story you would want to talk about, but that's, I mean, obviously it's true. But when he says, for example, that he had one of his people he mentions is Geshem, the king of the Arabians, and they actually have bowls where it says Gashmum al Karab, that's one of these like, incidental details, like, oh, so it's at least someone writing uh, credulous stories. That's very different from Esther, right? I mean, Esther is set in the king's court and claims to be talking about the king's wife. Herodotus, the contemporary, says that Xerxes was married when he came to the throne, his wife's name was Amestris. And she outlives him in 465. She's still alive, queen mother for the next king as well. So we have, you know, it's not just a question of like, can we confirm, but like, we have actual reports that seem to fly in the face of Dorian and Esther. Mm -hmm. Well, Persopolis is kind of off the beaten path in terms of the rest of Jewish activity in that area. Right. So you can, and also, Xerxes. <laughs> is all running around making wars all the right, time. Right, right, right. So there's a very narrow window yeah. in which we can get some documentation of whether the story exists or the, you know, is real or not. This is true. I mean, the history part I'll, I'll set aside for now. I'm happy to talk about it if you want to. No, I think it's a worthwhile question. For right now, I just want to come back to the Ezra Nehemiah point. Mm -hmm. So the chronological setting is important for our context, just to sort of think about where we're set. The Book of Nehemiah, starts with Nehemiah being in Shushan Abira, which is a phrase that obviously sounds relevant. And in the second paragraph that you have here, in the month of Nisan, he comes to the king, and the king looks at him, because he's the wine bearer, he's the Saramashkim, and the king looks at him and says, oh, you seem upset, what can I do for you? Which again is sort of, you know, it's hard to say an echo, because I don't know which one is written first, and maybe it will be that Esther is actually echoing Nehemiah, but at least the stories have this sort of rough parallel. The king looks at him and says, what can I do for you? Uh, and Nehemiah says, you have this in Pesukeh uh, there. So if I find favor in your eyes, please send me to Yehuda. He's giving up his domestic position of quite high standing and asks to be posted as something like a governor in Jerusalem. His, well, okay, whatever. His brother that he mentioned in this chapter, we actually do have mentioned in Alephantine letters, so it's one of these incidental details. One could read this as a repudiation of Esther's request, right? When Esther is asked, I can give you half the kingdom. So she asks, as we talked about last week, for the lives of the Jews, right? They should not die. That seems like something worthwhile asking for. She does not ask for anything more than that, right? She does not ask, from the perspective of Nehemiah, for example, the obvious thing to ask for would have been, could you please give me Jerusalem as an autonomous region? Or could you send me back to Jerusalem? Could you help me build up the Jerusalem as a, as a vibrant economic center? And that she doesn't ask for. She asks for nothing of a sort. She asks for the status quo, just don't let us die. Nehemiah, when given much the same opportunity, except not up to half the kingdom, which sounds really grand, says, send me to Jerusalem. I would like to build up Jerusalem. Right, so in, in mundane terms, right? it's not asking for anything, not asking the king to do it. Just send me, I, that's what I want to devote my life to at this point. 
So rather than using his position in Shoshana Birah to try to help the Jews, he says, actually, the best way I could help the Jews is go to Jerusalem and try to build it up. And his mission when he gets there is actually, you know, he tries to build the city walls, literally. So try to actually defend and isolate Jerusalem from neighbors. Gets upset about intermarriages, so he's trying to defend Jewish culture from acculturation, assimilation within Judea even. But he says, look, this is what I need to do for the Jews, right? The way I can use my Persian authority for the benefit of the Jews is not to stay in Shushan. The way I can use it is to go to Jerusalem and try to work there. So I don't care so much right now as to who's sort of riffing off who. I care just to juxtapose these. It's clear that they take very different tacks when given their opportunity to do something because of their Persian standing for the Jews. Interestingly, and this is the point that we'll end with, there are echoes in both Ezra, mostly Ezra, but a little bit Nehemiah as well, of a character, not Yosef, hard to see how Yosef would have been the right model here, but of Moshe. So Ezra teaches Torah Moshe, Ezra knows, as is so fair here, but he knows Torah Moshe, he teaches the law. He even, I included this as a last line here, he even sets out to go, Ezra sets out to go back to Yerushalayim in the middle of the month of Nisan, he actually waits for that in order to go. It's not clear exactly why he's waiting. So he waits for there to be Libyan with him, Kohanim with him, and then they march out together. And there's nothing nearly as clear as the allusions to Yosef and Esther, and there's no like line that just jumps out at you. But it seems, I think, very plausible that Ezra and Nehemiah have Moshe as their model. Now, as we talked about last time, Yosef and Moshe are good foils for one another. And so it wouldn't be all that surprising if in the days of Bayacheni, in the days of Second Temple, authors are looking at those two and actually picking one or the other. So Esther and Daniel say, like, look, we're diaspora Jews. Yosef's the right model here. That's the right one. But Ezra and Nehemiah, who are like, well, we're, we are diaspora Jews, but we're diaspora Jews in the sense that Moshe is diaspora Jew, meaning we want to get out of here. We want to go back to the land of Israel. So Joseph's not the right one. He's the one who enslaves everyone. Moshe is the right one. The one who says, okay, I'm going to get people out of this diaspora and back to the land of Israel. And so I think that the echoes of Moshe are fairly clear Again, they're fainter, but they're fairly clear in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm not going to say more about that now. I think, again, the point really, the reason I, I thought it was worthwhile to mention it all is because it really, I think, closes the circle of, now I can say thoughts, because we have three, maybe four authors, who are looking back to the stories at the end of Breshit, beginning of Shemot, as the model for the stories that are usable now that we're in exile, off in Mesopotamia or Persia or wherever, and then the question is, okay, so which part of these stories are we focusing on, right? Are we focusing on the beginnings of Joseph, maybe the early beginnings? Are we focusing on Joseph, but improving on him? Like, he is our model, but, like, we've got to make it a little bit better. Or we say, like, no, 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 put Joseph in the past. Like that, Joseph is a failure in the end of the day, right? What does he actually lead to? He leads to the Jews staying in Egypt for hundreds of years to come. That's not a good thing. He starts the enslavement of the Egyptians. And then it boomerangs back to his people, and they become enslaved. Why would I want to model anything on Joseph? He's a lousy role model. Let me flip to Moses, right? He's the one who says, who figured out how to reverse everything that Joseph engineered and take the Jews out of the diaspora. That's what we're going to build on. So overall, this seems to be a, again, you know, it's hard to know how many people were involved here, but it seems to be a fairly vibrant discussion of what exactly is our usable past from these stories? Like, how do we make that past into a usable one? And how do we write stories for our time that are actually going to mobilize those stories and build on them for constructing the identity, the culture, the way of thinking that actually is the one we were, we're interested in today? All right, so that's that, uh, that background. We're going to put that aside. And we're now going to turn to 
the book of Esther itself. When Esther has everyone fast for three days, mm -hmm. is, that, is that a religious act? It's a great question. Is fasting in Esther a religious act? So I actually want to not, for today, I want to put the religious part of the Megillah outside. It's obviously, like, it's crucial to the Megillah. So I just want to postpone it to next time. I will talk more about the religion and God part. Yeah, but that's a great, that's a great question. All right. So for today, I don't know if we'll be able to get through all this. I want to focus our attention on the characters of Mordechai and Esther. My... I think plausible hypothesis is that, especially in light of what you said, but actually in general, that this story is meant to say something about diaspora Jewish life, and therefore, in order to really think about what the story is saying about diaspora Jewish life, since it doesn't say anything prescriptive or descriptive, really, about the Jewish people to court, we have to look at the characters who are developed and assume that they are meant to somehow be instructive about what it means, maybe good, maybe bad, or maybe as we'll see, complicated, but what it means to be a diaspora Jew. So the characters are presumably sketched on purpose the way they are to say something about what it means to be a diaspora Jew and the conflicts that they have and the troubles that they have and the way they navigate them are presumably meant to be, again, I don't want to say like, therefore one ought to do X, Y, Z. It's not so simplistic, but at least to describe the challenges and the issues that are being faced. So I'm going to start with Mordechai. I could blame the author of Megillah, because he also starts with Mordechai, <laughs> but also because actually he's a much simpler character than Esther. So starting with him is, is a bit easier. Starting with Esther, Esther, I should say, I think is actually much more important for the author of the Megillah, but because of that, is also more complex and takes a bit more thinking to puzzle out. I should also just say, sort of, as a footnote, I just said something about the author of the Megillah being male. That's just an assumption based on, you know, ancient realities. I have, obviously have no idea. You know, later on, Megillah does say that Mordechai and then Esther and Mordechai wrote something, an account of the events, yeah. but because the writing of that account of the events is in the Megillah, is narrated in the Megillah, clearly the Megillah that we have is not that account of the events. So I don't have no idea who wrote the Megillah. I'm just sort of, you know, not going out on a limb and assuming it's male. I don't, I don't really mean to say anything more than that. All right. So Mordechai is, is introduced quite famously. He's a Yehudi. Now, what do you say? Right, exactly. So that's actually very important. Because if we've been paying attention to the Bible at all, we would know that when we see the phrase Yehudi, our immediate definition, sort of definition one is a Judean, someone who comes from Judah. Now, it's true that they're now in exile, and so Judean has gained at least one more meaning. Right? It could be a Judean, meaning someone who comes from the tribe of Judah, or it could be someone who comes from the province of Judah. In the Persian Empire, there is literally a province called Yehud, and so Yehudi would clearly be someone who lives in Yehud, and then maybe it doesn't matter what tribe they come from ethnically, but we very quickly realize, assuming that we don't know this already, that Mordecai is neither from the tribe of Judah, nor a resident of Yehud, nor has he come from Yehud, so it's unclear what it means that he is Yehudi at this point. How do you understand, like, what is Yehudi in the and the Megillah actually mean? Actually, the simplest question. Like, what does Yehudi mean? It's Jewish. It's Jewish, right? What's, what's striking about that is that this is the only place in Tanakh where Yehudi means Jewish. Oh. This is not normal for Biblical Hebrew. Right? Normally, and even later on, in, in rabbinic literature, the, like, thousands of times, you want to talk about a Jewish person, you need to talk about Israel. Mm -hmm. Israel is a normal term for a Jewish person. 
uh, Israel as opposed to Kuti, as opposed to Akum, as opposed to anything like this, Israel as opposed to Umot HaOlam, not a Yehudi. Yehudi is actually very rare, even in rabbinic literature. So this is not like, oh, the language is changing. I mean, you could say the language is changing, but if so, this is a dead end in the language development. Eventually, Hebrew goes a different direction and talks about Israel being Jewish. But in Esther, it's not just that he's a Yehudi, and there are other Yehudim, Yehudim keeps showing up. There's even a verb based on it, right? What do you have? Yeah, lehityahed, right? Kol later on are mityahadim, which can only mean something like Judaizing, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a pervasive ambiguity about Hittite verbs as to whether it means they are becoming Jewish or whether they're acting like Jewish. And there's really no way of knowing in this context or a bunch of other contexts whether, in other words, are they sincere or not? I don't know. It's, it's very hard to... The word, at least, doesn't tell us uh, enough information about that. But, okay, so first of all, the word is just worthy of our notice. This is striking. This is new. Just for the sake of completeness, there was a text on the first handout from Zachariah Paraklet where he also talks about Ishi Hudi, which I assume is, in fact, a precedent in some sense for the author of Esther here. Far less clear what it means there. It seems to mean someone on the way to Yehuda. But that's at least something that's, you know, if we were really, if we were going to do this more thoroughly, that would be something to put into the, into the mix. It's not exactly what's used in Esther, but it's somewhere in between the sort of normal biblical Hebrew usage and this. That's just to clear my conscience, so I don't you know, exaggerate the data. But also important is that this is the first time we've been reading Megillah you know, from the beginning, right? So we started Paragallus, Pasagallus, and we read a whole story. And what do we know about the Jews from chapter one? We don't know anything. We don't know anything. Like, as far as we can tell, you know, look, we're reading a Hebrew book. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Jews are presumably on our mind. But as far as we can tell, they're with everyone else. I mean, there's nothing set apart here, right? And that actually I mean, that goes to your point from earlier, because chapter 1 of Daniel, Daniel's in the palace, mm-hmm. and he, like everyone else, is offered food. And what does Daniel say? He says, no, I can't eat I won't eat that food. I will only eat a vegan diet. <laughs> Esther chapter 1, there's food, and the Jews, to the extent that we're thinking about them, they eat whatever no one says anything you know, the book doesn't say that there's any sort of like difference among the Jews than everyone else so that silence starts to ring louder once we get to this introduction we're like oh there's an issue D. that's interesting where was he in chapter 1 was he there were, were other Jews there like, what, what's going on with the Jews in chapter 1 you know, we don't think to ask that question in chapter 1 because the book doesn't say anything about Jews but now that we have Jews on our mind we do, I think, have to go back and ask, you know, where were they back then? So, if anything, chapter 1 paints this picture of, like, the whole empire is totally unified. Right? He throws a party for all of his officers. And then he throws a party for all of Shoshana Birah. The Migadol Vad Katan. Right? Everyone. Ethnic differences don't exist. Class differences don't exist. Like, nothing exists. Right? Everyone is just together at the same party. And this is the first time, actually, that we're told of someone who's marked as different. He is an issue who all right, what else do we know from his, his uh, introduction? Well, the next verse tells us that his great-grandfather was exiled from Jerusalem with the group that was carried into exile by Yehoiachin, by Yehonia, which, if you remember back from the end of the Book of Lachim, of Kings, Yehoiachin was only the cultural elites, only the, the political and cultural elites of the, of the people. This was the first exile. This was not the exile of the destruction of the temple. By then, the king is Sidkiahu, Zedekiah, Yehonia had been exiled 11 years earlier with 10,000 people, only the elites. So it's unclear what exactly, why exactly we need to know this other than to say that Mordechai comes from a noble family, apparently. 
not royalty, although maybe a long, long time ago there's some royal blood. What's the royal blood that may be in his family? Shaul. Yeah, Shaul, who's another character who's hovering in the background throughout this story. That's a long time ago, right? I mean, if we're now set in the, you know, roughly the year 475 or so. Saul was the king like more than 500 years ago. So that's, you know, that, that's not... That's not royal blood in the normal sense of, of the term. It, but, you know, we should say, his great-grandfather's name is Kish. Kish is Saul's father's name. He's an Ishimini. That's the same term used when Saul is introduced back in Samuel. So we're clearly meant to hear those echoes, even if it's not, like, a straightforward biological thing. Like he's descended from royalty. Like, if that's true, it was a very, very long time. But it's significant that he's not descended from the house of David. Yes, it is definitely significant. Excellent. And then we get to the person who actually matters, right? It turns out that he is raising Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, otherwise known as a cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. She was beautiful. Fine. But we're going to come back to Esther later on, so I'm going, to, I'm going to skip the rest of this excerpt here to the next excerpt, which is from the end of chapter 2. Mordechai was sitting at the palace gate. Now, it's hard to be totally sure, but it's likely actually based on something that we have in Daniel. Daniel, at the end of chapter 2, when he's promoted, in the story that we just looked at, after he's promoted, it says, Daniel betram Daniel was at the king's gate, which in context clearly means that he's now a member of the bureaucracy. He was just promoted to this important position. He's now at the king's gate. So based on that, many interpreters understand that when it says, Mordechai Yoshev Bashar this is not exactly a spatial description. I mean, it may, may also be a spatial description, like maybe that's where the offices were, but the important thing is that that means that he's a member of the royal bureaucracy. The reason it might actually also be a spatial description is that you can't imagine a gate as like a little doorway. A city gate for a major city is a huge edifice with actually lots of rooms inside. The archaeology of Susa is not good. But Persepolis is our best way of checking this out because the, the Persian kings, of course, had four capitals. So in the absence of Susa, we could look at Persepolis. And the city gate in Persepolis is huge. I mean, it's this massive complex. This is saying something about Manhattan apartments, but the city gate is much larger than this apartment. So you know, when you say he sits at the city gate, again, that might actually be physically true, but it's not to say that he's just sort of sitting in the gate, like, loafing around all day. What it really means is it has something to do with the royal bureaucracy. It's somehow in the employ of the, of the bureaucracy. And of course, the story that it introduces is this assassination plot of Lieutenant Teresh. We're told that they are Mishomrei Hasaf. What's a Saf? Well, the unfortunate answer is that there's two words Saf in biblical Hebrew. A, um, I don't know what the word is. <laughs> yeah. right, so, so one meaning is a threshold, right? In which case, Shomrei Hasaf, yeah. Shomrei Hasaf would mean that there are guards at some sort of entranceway, right? Which is, I think, how the vast majority of readers interpret it. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, because Saf certainly does mean threshold in biblical Hebrew. But there's another word, saf, and there's a couple of places where this is ambiguous. One is actually back in Exodus, doesn't matter right now. But saf is also some sort of vessel, a drinking vessel. In which case, shumreya saf means something totally different. What would they be then? Yeah, they may not actually be the ones to present it to him, but they're the ones who are in charge of making sure, why do you need shumreya saf? Because that's the easiest way of assassinating the king. Make sure that there's no poison, right? The, the tasters, right, exactly. So, of course, in that, the only Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, actually back in his commentary in Exodus, on a totally unrelated verse, says that Saf in that verse means a cup, and the same thing is true in Esther. Rashbam doesn't have a commentary in Esther, but he sort of buries that back in Exodus. 
the, the great reason that that's interesting is that then it's totally clear how they would assassinate the king. Right? They don't need to do anything interesting. All they have to do is betray their own job and poison him. They're the ones trusted with making sure that he's not poisoned. Anyway, all right, doesn't matter right now. So they have this plot. Mordechai discovers it somehow. Not at all clear how it's known to him, but Mordechai learns of it. And he, how does he report it? To arrest him. Which is clearly not the normal way of reporting assassination plots. Right? I mean, that, there's got to be some way, like if you discover an assassination plot, there's got to be some way of reporting this to the FBI or whatever, which does not involve happening to know the queen. Uh, there's got to be like, some normal means of conveying this information. And so a lot of readers have assumed that this is actually Mordechai's attempt to somehow ingratiate Esther to the king, which seems plausible because otherwise it's unclear why he's using this. Again, assassination attempts are not that far-fetched in the Persian Empire or any other empire. There's got to be a way for someone to report that. So, you know, we actually have a bunch of like, weird texts about, not weird, but texts of, of uh, assassination attempts, some of which are actually funny. We have one letter back from the Syrian Empire where someone attempts to report an assassination attempt, uh, and because no one's allowed to see the king, right, as we know from Esther, because the people who are close to him are called the Ro'e Pnehamela, those who see the king, he's brought with a sheet over his head in front of the king, and he said, and he said, what do you know about this plot? And he reports it, and then they uncover him, and it turns out he's speaking to the ringleader of the plot, and then he manages to escape, but his two colleagues are actually killed by the ringleader. So anyway, there's got to be a way of reporting assassination attempts. Sorry, what were you going to say? I think King Xerxes, Xerxes, who was supposed to be Ahasuerus, I think actually was actually killed by his, by, 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 uh, some attempt, yeah. In 465. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He is, in fact, assassinated. Yeah, Can I ask a question? Because one of the key pieces of the story is that when Mordechai says to Esther, go tell the king about this, she says, I can't just go talk to the king. And here it says, oh, he told Esther, and yep. she told the king. Yep. So that seems to be a little contradictory. Uh, yep. Well, it's not contradictory, it, because so, we're not told that she burst in unannounced or anything of the sort. But there's no drama here. right? We actually don't know how the information got from one to the other. We also, it, it's not clear that Mordecai can walk into Esther's right. rooms and just say, like, I have something to talk to you about. Now that she's the queen, that seems very unlikely. Mm-hmm. We'll have to, you know, how unlikely depends on some open questions that we'll have to touch on in a second, but it certainly doesn't seem like... In other words, what I'm trying to say is that that verse seems to condense what must have been a yeah. fairly complicated process. But it, it couldn't have transpired over a long period of time, though, because the king would have been dead. I mean, right. it's not like they plotted, right. we're going to kill him three years from now. That sounds, that sounds right. I think at this point, the storyteller is actually just uninterested in the details. Right? The, there's a couple of important things to say. One is that Mordechai knew about it, and that's clearly the most important thing for our purposes right now. The other is that he chose to convey it through Esther. He's really not interested in anything, but Bukash the Barbi might say, right? It was investigated, it was found. How? What kind of evidence? We don't care. The two of them were impaled, um, and it was written down to say for the That's really important, as we know, for later on. I included the next part because it seems very important. So the, literally the next line, right, which is sometimes obscured because it's the next chapter, so depending on how you read it, you might have stopped in the middle. But literally the next line is, after these things, the king promoted... Right, but that's crazy, right? I mean, who should the king promote at this point? Mordecai. So that's really important literarily because this is the first of the many times that Haman and Mordecai are going to switch places, right? And in this case, what Mordecai clearly should have gotten, 
Right, he just saved the king's life. He obviously should get a promotion. Instead, for reasons that are totally unknown to us, goes to Haman. So this is going to happen repeatedly. That's something that's meant for one goes to the other. Right, rewards, punishments, back and forth. But this is the first of those times. And just the chapter break tends to obscure that, which is annoying. But, okay. Now, fine. Then we get to Haman. Sorry, I'm not going to go through this. As you know, he won't bow down. Very good. Haman gets mad. He decides to take it out, not just on Mordechai, but on the entire Jewish people. Decrees genocide against all the Jewish people. Fine. We get to the next chapter, and turn to page three. Mordechai Yadda, I want to focus for the next ten minutes on the character of Mordechai as we see it here. Mordechai Yadda, kol asher nasa, nasa. Ve'ikran Mordechai Yadda, ve'ilbash sak, ve'efer, ve'itzei b'toch ha'ir, ve'izak z'akha g'dola v'mara. So Mordechai knew everything that happened. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went through the city crying loudly and bitterly. We've been speaking about illusions. There's someone else who is ve'izak z'akha g'dola v'mara. Asad, which is interesting, right? Like, do we want? Is the author trying to convince us that Mordechai is somehow reminiscent of Asad, at least in some sense? So, interesting. But I want to just emphasize that despite the sort of impression that you get that this is a spontaneous outpouring of grief, there is nothing spontaneous about going home, putting on Sakra Efer, ripping it, and walking through the streets screaming, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the emotions might be spontaneous, but that is a deliberate action. This is not just he was thrown into a frenzy and like, you know, couldn't believe it, and so he tore his hair out and screamed and ran all the way home. Like, he went home and actually comes back out. I don't want to claim that this is performance art, but it is clearly something of an intentional public display of what his reaction is to this. And this is really important, because we're now told, right? And he's got to know that. Right? I mean, he now has just barred himself from where he usually is, which is at the city gate. He's not allowed in the city gate. And the city gate meaning the royal part of the city. So he's not allowed in that royal palace gate or whatever it is anymore. Now, that makes us realize that he's actually making some very deliberate choices here. Right? And I think it's not at all implausible for us to also realize that the Sha'ar is literally a liminal space. I mean, it's literally what liminal means. Like, it's on the border, right? So is he in the royal part of the city or is he outside the royal part of the city? Well, normally he is Yoshev Bishar Hamela, which means he is right on that border. Right? He can talk to the queen, at least somehow. He's, he has access to Shar Hamela, but that's not where he lives. He lives Be'ir Shushan, lives out in the city, and he's at the gate. I mean, he brings both ways. He's able to both enter the Shah Melech and leave the Shah Melech. That's his former existence. But now, he's actually prevented himself from entering that Shah anymore. Now that's really interesting. Because in the story of Haman, he wouldn't bow down. What did everyone say to him? Why won't you bow down? down? What did he say? Well, he says, I'm Jewish. Well, we don't get a direct quote, but he told them that he is a Jew. Now, we have this, you know, open question, like, so, like, what's wrong with, like, I don't get it. Like, Jews are allowed to bow down to people. So, clearly something, I assume something about the ethnic animosity, but I'll put it aside for now. I don't really know the answer. But the important thing is that that makes it seem, makes it sound like, if you had asked his co-workers, his colleagues, whatever these people are, what can you tell me about Mordecai? <coughs> Until now, they don't know he's Jewish. Maybe, like, literally, they don't know he's Jewish. Certainly, it doesn't seem to be a salient part of his identity. Right? When they challenge him, then, he told them he was Jewish. 
That doesn't seem implausible, because of course in his day job, he's a Persian. His name is Mordecai. He has a beard, obviously, because all Persian people, at least in the reliefs, have beards. Um, what? All Persian men. Persian men. That is a fair point. I said Persian, Persian people in the reliefs. Yeah, Persian people in the reliefs, yeah. But you're right. Persian men in the reliefs have beards. So he, you know, obviously doesn't wear his tits out. And I don't know, he's, he's plausibly like a Persian like everyone else. What does he do at home? I don't know. I have no idea. You know, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just go back to what we said. Like, the story hasn't said anything about religious observance and never will say anything about religious observance. But it has started to say now something about identity. So if until now, his Jewish identity was like, you know, I don't know, covert at best, until it was pressed, that Haman episode seems to have made him bring it out in the open. Now he said, no, no, I'm a Yehudi. Now that he's a Yehudi, he's actually gone very public with it once there's not just a challenge of Haman bowing down, but this genocidal decree. Now he says, now that I'm a Yehudi, what am I going to do? He actually dresses in a way that prevents him from entering the king's palace, which seems remarkably symbolic, right? It's actually going to be a problem in this story, because now he can't communicate with Esther. He has to stay outside and like, send messages back and forth. So this is actually pretty annoying, right? So it's not a pragmatic, tactical thing, like, I'm going to stand outside and make my life as complicated as possible. The point seems to be, I can't go into the king's palace anymore. Because up until now, I've been dancing this dance. I'm a Persian and a Jew, and like, that, that works okay. At this point, he has thrown his lot clearly in with the Jews if it's going to come down to it. If the Persians and the person of the king are going to declare war against the Jews, I'm with the Jews. And if that means I can't go to the king anymore, can't go to the king anymore. So his identity had been complicated. This is what I meant when I said like, he's a simpler character. He pretty quickly in the story <laughs> actually makes a sharp decision and says, I'm with the Jews, not with the Persians. And, just to cap this off, when he goes to Esther, when he has this, this conversation with Esther, what does he ask Esther to do? Tell the king she's Same thing, right? Go in. Yeah. right? Just plead. Throw yourself on the floor. Say, I'm Jewish. You need to help me. Like, give up on being queen. I mean, this is not queenly behavior anymore. Uh, who knows what the result will be. But do what you have to do. You've got to save the Jews. And Esther, to go back to the complexity, Esther first says no, but never accepts that. Right? She never goes in and just is mitchanen to the king, mitchanenet to the king, right. throwing herself on the floor. Right? Actually, she goes in <laughs> dressed how? <laughs> malchut, right? Malchut. She goes in and he sees Esther Malkan. She will never, in this story, throw out her queenly identity. Now, Mordechai gets a little bit more complicated later on because he comes back to being a good Persian as well. But at this point, he has taken a really strong stand by, by wearing Sakva Eifer. Right? In other words, this very deliberate action is, first of all, a public display of his, of his uh, loyalties. Right? This is a decree against the Jews, so Sakva Eifer is right? walking around screaming about it. But symbolically, it also literally means that he can't enter the king's environs anymore, which I think the, the space is very symbolic. So if the Sha'ar was this liminal space, liminal space where he was Yoshev Bashar, he could sit on the gate and thereby represent the fact that he was on the border. At this point, he has made it clear that he is no longer spatially on the border, and therefore also in terms of identity, no longer on the border. He's fully in sympathy with and actually together with the Jews in the ear, not with the royal people in the, in the Birat. 
So, of course, that's going to be important because Esther, who stays in the palace, is going to tell him, okay, you go gather the people, right? So she's going to work in the palace, he's going to gather the people, but he'll be with the people for, for the coming couple of chapters. All right, we're basically out of time. So permit me to just start the discussion about Esther, uh, but then we'll have to pick this up next time. Esther is introduced right after Mordecai is introduced. Right? But her identity is more complex from the beginning because she's introduced with two names. And that already makes it complicated. Now, one of the names will never reappear, as we talked about, right? Hadassah will never reappear. So the only reason to tell us that she has the name Hadassah is to tell us that she has a complicated identity. And that name is really important, right? Whatever the biographical background that we're supposed to imagine as to why she has two names. Is she given two names at birth? Does she get one of them later on? It doesn't matter. The story seems uninterested in those kinds of issues. But her Jewish name is never again deployed, right? Now, Again, we talked about this. Yosef and Daniel are good, are good comparisons. Yosef has a name, Sofnafaneh, Egyptian name. We never hear that name again. No. He's only called Yosef. Daniel is actually alternately called Belchatzar and Daniel. Actually, for as far as I can tell, no rhyme or reason. But the, both names are used. But Esther never has her Jewish name at all. So it's complicated to begin with. And you said earlier on that you know, what we're told about her from the beginning is basically that she's super passive. Right? She really takes no initiative. But I want to at least raise the question of whether that passivity is actually itself active. Because the, so she's taken, right? Fatilaka. That's not so... I, you know, people make a big deal about it. I actually am not so impressed by that line, that word. I mean, she's taken. Like the king said, all, all virgins, all beautiful virgins at least, I have to come to the palace. So she's taken. I mean, that's... Like, what choice did she have? That wasn't, no one answered. It may be, you know, it, it is technically a passive verb, so I don't want to belittle it, but it doesn't seem to be all that striking to me. But much more strikingly passive is what we're told when she's in the palace. Right? All of the girls were allowed to ask for anything they wanted before they went to the king. They had all, there's 12 months to figure out what they wanted, you know, all the perfumes and the oils and whatever they wanted. And what did Esther ask for? You remember what she asked for? Only what, only what the 30s thought. Ah, okay. So it's the last line on the first page. Mm-hmm. Right? She doesn't ask for anything except what? Who suggested? Hegai, the king's eunuch, Shomer Hanashim, right? the guardian of the women. Now, that's not exactly not asking for anything. No. What does she take? She takes whatever the guy in charge of the king's women recommends. That actually could be a really shrewd move, right? Who cares what my perfume was back home? If that doesn't seem important, what's the relevant question if I want to curry favor Develop with the king? Develop a relationship with this guy. Yeah, well, I need to know what the king likes, right? Who cares what I used to wear? I need to know what he likes. And so the person to ask is the Shomer Nashim. I mean, what does the king ask for? So she is passive. It, why write it this way? She didn't ask for anything except for. Why not just say what she asked yeah, for? Yeah, great. The thing? great. No, I, I want to leave it as an open question that we, should, we can come back to next time. But the passivity may be exactly her choice of tactics yeah, rather than yeah, yeah. a character trait that she just right. has no choice about. Same way with not telling the king she's Jewish. That's exactly, exactly. So, so let's, let's open that as a question that we'll, we'll have to start with next time. She is absolutely passive at this point in the story. She's going to become active later on. Mm-hmm. But that passivity might actually be a really shrewd choice on her part rather than just a lack of a yeah, spine or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we will have to stop here. Just to remind you, so next week we're not meeting. So we're meeting again in two weeks, whatever that is. I don't know what date anything.